Hello and welcome to Mountain Talk. I'm your host, Rachel Geringer. In February 1981, the Appalachian Land Ownership Study was published. The study was produced out of a two-year community research project covering 80 counties across six states. Tennessee, Kentucky, Virginia, West Virginia, North Carolina, and Alabama. The 1981 study, which received funding from the Appalachian Regional Commission, aimed to understand not just who owns the land on the surface, but also who owned the mineral rights underneath. The findings showed that in many central Appalachian counties, absentee mining corporations owned more than half of the land and up to 70% of the mineral rights. The study also found that major mining corporations owned 50 to 70% of the land, but paid only 4% of county property taxes. It's been over 25 years since the report was published, and there's now a growing effort to conduct another study to explore current land ownership realities in central Appalachia. In September 2016, over 60 participants gathered in Lexington, Kentucky to launch the new effort. The following audio, recorded by Mimi Pickering, features Shauna Scott, Joe Childers, and Susan Williams speaking about their involvement with and outcomes of the initial study. It was really important to me, the land study, because as a young person coming out of eastern Kentucky and not wanting the door to hit her butt on the way out, I... uh, never thought I would develop a really intense uh, scholarly passion in the region. I always assumed I would move away and make my life elsewhere doing something else. And, uh, but it was upon reading that study and also experiencing Appalachian Studies courses at UK that made me really change my mind about what I was going to do with my life and also made me uh, change my um, self-conception and my perception about the place I was from and about my ancestors who I used to think were possibly a source of embarrassment and now did no longer believe that. So it was very empowering for a student to read this study. And um, <clears throat> I was always, um, I always was interested in it and always uh, noted that when we went to Appalachian Studies Association meetings or hung out with anybody who was interested in Appalachia, that people would sometimes bring up the land study as this really important um, groundbreaking study, not only for the, the facts that it turned up or its findings, but also for the processes and, um, of pulling academics and concerned citizens and uh, all kinds of stakeholders together and empowering people. And people would often uh, reminisce about that as, why don't we do that again? Certainly, um, Billy Schumann from Appalachian State called me uh, uh, not that long ago, a year or two ago, suggesting this very thing. Why don't we do the land study again? And should we have a convening maybe at the Appalachian Studies? So it's always been in the background. And so a few years ago, I, I did some research about it and used the opportunity to write book chapters and journal articles and use that as an opportunity to read about the study more, but also interview all my heroes who also worked, who worked on the study and write about it. So, um, you know, based on, on that experience, I did want to just offer from the academic, that's the personal side, now the academic side, 
is that some of the things that I learned from talking to everybody and from reading the archival materials like the minutes and the letters and, and all the articles and things that the task force wrote and the reports that they wrote, I learned a few things that I think might be lessons for us to think about as we go forward. And one was um, how vulnerable you can be to politics, particularly if you, um, f if all your eggs come from one basket. In that case, it was the Appalachian Regional Commission that, that provided uh, 131,000 and some, a little bit more than that, but about that uh, to do the study and under the Carter administration, but the study got done, uh, got completed and turned in under the Reagan administration, and that really was made a huge difference because the agency was pretty much fighting for its life, its funding, its continued existence, and could did not feel like they could be associated with the some of the recommendations of the study that included things like taxing on my minerals and protecting surface owners' rights, and instituting planning and zoning for better environmental protection and regulation and but I think this is the big one uh, enabling government to seize property for economic alternative economic development that was probably the one that really really they thought would not fly in in a <laughs> supply side uh, trickle down economics Reagan-esque uh, market fundamentalism, fundamentalism yay capitalism moment that we were entering into so, uh, and also I should say, and limited government really didn't go with government can take land for alternative economic development. The moment had passed for that suggestion, apparently. And that had big consequences for the, for the study because then it didn't get publicized, you know, they didn't, they didn't print it out. You know, eventually the task force went to the University Press of Kentucky, <coughs> which maybe we'll do someday, who knows, to, uh, you know, have the study published as a book, but it didn't go out in the regular channels that everybody anticipated it would, and not only that, but the ARC commissioned like a blue ribbon panel of academics to review the study, and basically critique it and discredit the study, to distance themselves from the study, which, which uh, I'm grateful to Herb at lunch for just reminding me to emphasize the importance of the political dimensions of the study and how as much as we might want to and should think about methods and data and longitudinal and comparative analysis, there's still going to be this political context that's going to probably challenge whatever we do. So we just need to be ready for that, I think, if, if, we, mm -hmm. if and as we go forward. So maybe I'll stop there because you probably want to hear more from from people who actually had a direct experience, who just who produced the information that was in the mimeographs that I read as a youngster. <laughs> Not that they're that much older. I'm sorry. Yeah, y'all feel old now. No, I didn't mean that. Well, I was going to comment on that. You're a law. You're, you were a law student or a graduate. Well, you you came along after I did because I wanted to major in Appalachian studies. Uh oh. But there was only one course offered at UK in Appalachian Studies. Yeah. Dwight Billings was teaching it. 
And there wasn't a minor, there wasn't a major. Right. So yeah. you got the benefit of all their of hard people work. People like Herb Reed, I know and Dwight it. Billings, and other people coming in and starting to teach Appalachian I did, yeah. Studies courses. So yeah. I was actually just right on the, the cusp. I was like just a year or two younger than these guys. I just, you know, if I'd been smarter, I could have probably participated in the study, but I wasn't that smart. You were. You were pretty smart. Well, my involvement, uh, I was an undergrad, and I was looking for courses in Appalachia, and Harry Cottle came to UK to teach, so I took Harry's course in history, as we called it, History According to Harry Cottle, <laughs> which was very interesting. It was a fascinating yeah. course, and one, we, we all had to do a research project, so the research project that I chose to do was Who Owns Harlan County? And this was in, this was this predated the land ownership study. So I spent a considerable amount of time going to Harlan County, digging through uh, PVA records, court records, deeds to find out who owned Harlan County. And I published a paper for Harry's course, uh, and I was astonished at the results. The results were there's a, only a handful of companies that own the majority of Harlan County. And I was even more surprised by the amount of surface land that was owned by these companies. Because mm -hmm. I, I had begun to expect that we would find a lot of mineral, the mineral ownership was very concentrated in large absentee corporations, but not the surface. And, and, I, and I found that both were very highly concentrated. So I, I became very interested in land ownership and that was probably two years, or maybe a year before the uh, convening of the group at Highlander, where we all came together and miraculously convinced ARC to, for the first time in its history, to pay for a study that was not going to be done by academics, it was going to be done by people in their own communities, which later came back to bite them in the, the rear end, as, as you said. But, but it was, uh, and I don't know if they've ever funded a study since, like the land ownership study that had that kind of grassroots involvement. I, I kind of doubt it. But I was a state coordinator in Kentucky. Uh, we picked 12 counties in Kentucky to look at. Um, we had a fairly small group working on, on Kentucky. We only had about four of us, four or five of us that actually did the data collection and so it was pretty intense. We, we fanned out and went out into the counties, poured through all the records that we could to find out who owns the land, who owns the minerals. Uh, we, we compiled all that data. And then we, we had three counties where we did a more in-depth case study. Three of those 12, we did a more in-depth case study uh, and wrote up the results of our findings, interviewed a lot of people about land use and land ownership. Um, and it's funny, I was talking to Susan earlier, and she she said that Boomer, who worked on the study with us in Tennessee and worked with Susan, by the time it was over, he didn't want to have anything to do with it. It was so, you know, and that's kind of the way I was. I was in law school during the time we did. We started the, law, the study my first year of law school, and we published it as I was graduating my third year of law school. So... That was my summer job and, and part-time job while I was in law school. Was, and I did get paid. And I, I, I am a proponent of paying people to do this kind of work mm -hmm. because it is a lot of work. 
Um, so it came out, it came out the spring that I graduated from law school, and we got quite a bit of press in Kentucky. We had the Courier Journal was front page, the Lexington Herald Leader was front page. It got pretty widely publicized, uh, particularly the findings related to taxation. <clears throat> what really, you know, and I didn't know this going into it, um, I expected that we would find a lot of concentrated mineral ownership, as I said. Learned that we also found a lot of concentrated surface ownership. And during the process of, of taking all that data and, and putting it into some kind of readable form, we also discovered that the state legislature in Kentucky had decided to exempt coal in the ground from property tax. So we had this great example we used from Martin County, uh, which was that Pocahontas Land Company owned 81,000 acres of coal in Martin County, which, and this was in 1981, which soon became, as Chris and I were talking, one of the largest uh, mountaintop removal, large-scale mining operations in the 80s. I don't know how many billions of dollars were extracted coal from, from that property that was owned by Pocahontas. And their property tax rate was so low that they paid $76 a year in property tax on 81,000 acres of coal in the ground. And so what the, the example we used was, well, that's the same amount that Joe Blow was paying on a brand new Ford pickup truck at the time. He paid about $76 in tax, and Pocahontas paid about $76 in tax on this unmined coal. So out of that finding, we began to go to different communities, starting in Martin County and Harlan County, and John Rosenberg, I wish he was here, was mm -hmm. instrumental in that, and Joe Zakis, who's now in Virginia. Um, anyway, we started talking to people in communities about the findings that we had, and about this, particularly about this unfair tax rate, because it so happened that where the vast mineral wealth in Kentucky was concentrated, also had the poorest schools, the worst county services. Martin County didn't even have a public sewer system. In fact, there was a UK, I think, had a uh, demonstration project on one of the reclaimed mines where they raised pigs. Remember this, Chris? Cattle. I think Moorhead was involved. Yeah, Moorhead was involved. And they had this elaborate... Uh, experimental farm on a reclaimed strip mine, and they had a sewer system for these animals, but nobody in Martin County had public sewer system. So that began to stir up some controversy and similar things in Harlan County, so pockets of people started talking about it. We, we traveled over the state, eastern Kentucky at least, talking about these findings from the study that we were coming up with. And then out of that grew the Kentucky Fair Tax Coalition, which uh, took on the coal industry in the legislature. That was a David versus Goliath battle, if there ever was one. But uh, And our goal was to increase this tax on unmined coal, to make it equitable. To It's real estate. Unmined, if you buy coal in the ground, it's real estate. So people were paying about a dollar per hundred dollars of value in tax on their homes. The coal companies were paying one-tenth of one cent per hundred dollars of value on their coal. 
and the legislature had done that in a, what we later found out in litigation was a, a, a deal that the Kentucky Coal Association cut with the governor back in the 70s. So we didn't think that was right. We thought there was something fishy about that. And I graduated from law school and with the help of the enormous help of the Southern Poverty Law Center, we were able to bring a lawsuit against the state. We, we, we tried to get the legislature to address it. We actually got a bill out of committee the first, very first time we went before them. And then we found out something about something called the Rules Committee. We, we didn't even know what the Rules Committee was. Well, turns out it's a very powerful committee in the legislature. They can pretty much bury any legislation, which they did. So we tried for three consecutive sessions to get a bill passed to, to, in, to right this wrong. Never got it passed. But in the meantime, with the help of the Southern Poverty Law Center, we filed a lawsuit. Um, we sued the Department of Revenue, said this was unconstitutional. All real property in Kentucky has to be taxed at the same rate. You can't have separate rates for within a same class. We won at the Franklin Circuit Court. We won at the Court of Appeals. They took it to the Supreme Court, and we won at the Supreme Court. So in 1988, after five years of litigation, we finally won that battle. And so the, the dollar per hundred that you were paying on your home, per dollar per hundred of assessed value in tax, the coal companies then had to start paying a dollar per hundred dollars of value. And that greatly increased the tax base for these the poorest 12, more than 12, 12 we studied. But beginning in 88, the, the Franklin Circuit Court oversaw that litigation and kept it after it was sent back from the Supreme Court and we'd won. We worked with closely with the Franklin Circuit Court judge, who's down retired, Judge Graham, and he oversaw this for over 20 years. And he would he would force the Commissioner of Revenue to come in and threaten to hold him in contempt if he didn't do the job properly. So we were able to keep that kind of consent decree in place and have a centralized assessment of all minerals because we knew if, if we left it to these PVAs, there would be all kinds of local political influence. They didn't know what they were doing. They didn't know how to value coal in the ground. So it became a centralized process, a mineral valuation section, and now it's been almost 30 years that that tax has been collected and somewhere between 300 and 500 million dollars uh, of property taxes has been collected in Kentucky for school and most of it's gone to the school systems. Some of it's gone to the county governments uh, and then some of it came to the state and what the portion that came to the state, it was interesting, my law partner and I, who worked on this case together, later became the Secretary of Natural Resources in Kentucky. So when he was Natural Resources Secretary, he was able to get a bill passed that directed the state portion of that money into the Land Heritage Conservation Fund. And so it's, that money has continued to recirculate in buying historic, you know, valuable ecological sites, including Blanton Forest, uh, including other significant sites. So even the state portion of the money has been used well. I can't speak for the county portion, 
you know how county governments are, but at least the school systems have benefited enormously from it. And now we're starting to see a decline with the coal industry in decline, a decline of that tax base, a decline of the severance tax that's collected. So who knows what's going to, you know, what's going to fill that gap. But that's why we're here. And this, I think this is a very important gathering, not only to look back at what we did 35 years ago, but also to see, to build on that and see where we need to go in order to sustain some of the good, at least, that came out of the land study and maybe build on that for the future. So I'll quit. Let's see talk. So uh, I was 23. I'd gone to work for Sockham. Boomer told me that I was going to go do research on this land ownership study. He gave me a copy of the State Public Records Act. He took me to Scott County, and I started doing research and being part of this process. And so I was brand new to everything. Um, but I've been thinking a lot about what I would say about that whole experience. In Tennessee, it was led by Sockham. So Sockham had been working in Tennessee, had been around for, I think, seven or eight years then, had worked on land and minerals, actually starting with some work in Maurice community and so it wasn't a there was a group and an issue but um, here's just some things I would say about my reflections one is that it really came out of a political organizing process so the hope was for there to be organizing and policy to change not just on a national or state level but locally and in some places that happened more than others but I think Kentucky is the place where it happened the most powerfully um, I feel like that for me, uh, I did four counties in Tennessee that I wasn't from. And I stayed with members of Sockham in those counties. I did a case study in one of the counties. And so here's some things that I think were most valuable is that I learned how to do research and I wasn't afraid to look for information no matter who it was. And that's what Boomer taught me. And so I'd go in any county and I'd figure I could get it. And so that's the, helping people get over the intimidation and feel like they can get information is a really powerful thing that could come out of this work. Because I took soccer members all the time to the courthouses, and I'd show them, like, oh, you want to know who owns land here? And they'd say, we can see these? And this was their county. So, so what we leave in the places that people can have in terms of access to information, analysis about the county, the strategies for where they want to move forward. Land is central. Land is central to these counties. We hardly ever talk about land. And I think it's true across the South, land ownership in Appalachia, and it makes me wonder about land ownership in West Tennessee. So I feel like, how do we do this that people can actually, in communities, lead the process, share what they know about their history, get, get, get experience doing research, and be able to be there for when somebody might need help doing something, and be there to know when land changes. And I feel sad about the fact that, I think it's because Boomer was tired, we've gone on to a million other issues, we didn't go back to those counties and say, here's what we found, let's talk about it. We didn't take it back in a way that could have been really powerful. And... The power is not just in the statistics and the taxes and stuff, but it's also in the history that brought you there and people's vision in the future. So I was did four counties contiguous to each other, Cumberland, Fentress, Scott, and Morgan. They're right next to each other. They're in the coal field. You might think that they're very similar, but they actually, out of their history, have some very marked differences that I learned a lot about that have a lot to do with how people are now. So one example is in Fentress County. I worked there over a number of years after it. There was trauma from the Davidson Wilder strike in the Depression, which was because of mining and land ownership that was still in that county. It didn't exist in any other counties. And so I think that the whole thing about history that brings us to the place and the future is important in terms of the research that we do. So it's not just the current time. It's like, how do we get here? And people know a lot about that. It's important to share that information and transfer it to new, new generations, I think. 
because um, I learned a lot from talking to elders in these communities, like Lewis, Lewis, um, Lewis uh, he, I forget his last name, but he had come to work, cut down the trees in a forestry camp in Sequatchie County as a young man, cut down the original timber. And he took me to where the Trail of Tears had gone across his land. And he knew all about this land. He knew, he knew who the owners were. He knew about their history. And so, so I think it is uh, giving it more depth and life and energy and spirit about what this means and not just the statistics and the policies. To me, that's what I really got. And that's what I learned from people in the community. And that's what I think is important to embed in this. Um, and uh, I think there, in Tennessee, there's been tremendous changes. I learned from Andrew, we, we did a little test uh, sampling for the APL conference, I don't know how many years ago. Uh, Ada Smith tried to do Letcher County, couldn't get the information. We had someone from Scott County, and she was from there, so he was really friendly with her. And I tried to do Sequatchie County, but we met up with Andrew, who told us about these Timos. And that's who owns the land down on the Cumberland Plateau now. Mm -hmm. And so I was like, that was really helpful to know that these things existed. So I think there is also a way where the larger changes that we see can also help inform people and vice versa. That there's a, that just in this day, I think we've all learned a lot from each other. So that, that was part of the process of people coming back to Honda, sharing what they knew, and then going back and coming back and going back. So, the, so what we share together and what we take home and how we compile stuff together to help us all have a better analysis, I think is really important. Um, so that's just some reflections. <laughs> I just told a group. I, this is the first thing I did with Sockham, and I was like, God, I feel like I'm visiting my past. But uh, I did want to say that, so there's a general report that is scanned, and then there's a state report. This about this thick for every state. Um, and has, who's ever seen their state report? I wrote it. <laughs> well, I'm glad you read it. So, and I read drafts. <laughs> so, so just to say, in the state report is where there's case studies from a sampling of the counties, which has some more information, and it has the actual details about the top owners of the counties that were sampled. So I'm only saying this because we just have cooked up a way to sort of get ASU to digitize these, this material so that we could all have access to it. Okay. So I just wanted to say that this, this, is, this is really, from your state, this is really a good thing to look at. This is, and I have a copy of just North Carolina, Alabama's, and West Virginia's, which I brought from my archive because I have extra copies, so I'm, I'm holding them very close because they're very precious, but we need to like get it online and free. I also brought copies of, so um, one of the things that the Alliance produced, it was the Appalachian Alliance, not the Alliance for Appalachia. Uh, they produced a thing called Who Owns It? Researching Land and Mineral Values in Their Community, and I think part of it was trying to help people think about how they could learn how to do this research. And so I brought some copies of this, and Betsy said it's also be on the website. So if people could share a copy, and then I also brought a two-pager that was just an informational thing that people produced, and I brought something else. Oh, an article by John Edgerton that was in the Progressive um, during that time. So I just wanted to share some of the original materials for people and to say that we should really make the state studies available to people because that will be really a great grounding and I realize how hard it's been for anybody to see them because of because of the politics <laughs> but but you're right Susan the state studies have so much more information in them than in the book which was it's a great book published by the University Press but the state volumes if you can find them go to your special collections at your state university and maybe find one uh, have a lot more information and I, have, I also brought some old relics Here's John Edgerton's article from the Progressive right here. Uh, Southern Exposure from 1982, Who Owns Appalachia. Steve Fisher's uh, reader, Landless People in a Rural Region. So I'll leave those up here. If people want to, don't take them. 
Well, you can look at them. They're up here. And I just wanted to say, too, that I'm glad that people like Shauna came along to actually read all this stuff because by the time I got through, I was like Boomer. I was tired. I didn't want to read any of this stuff. But I'm glad that Shauna had read the mimeographs. And I was more interested in going on and litigating and you know trying to organize That's groups like KFTC. But Herb? Now, let me add a little history uh, that I think uh, helps explain Boomer's uh, feelings and, and position. Boomer <laughs> Winfrey. Uh, uh, when Congress <coughs> sent Smekra to Jimmy Carter's desk, uh, and the question was whether Carter would sign it or not, the uh, Appalachian Alliance met at Highlander under the trees there and voted overwhelmingly to ask him to veto the bill. And of course, he chose to sign the uh, bill and uh, made some apologetic remarks about, uh, you know, he wished it had been stronger and so forth and so on. Uh, but Boomer uh, was one of the persons often quoted in the media in opposition to uh, Smikra. And uh, as we know, of course, it went into effect, and uh, we got the OSM and all these state plans and so, so on and so forth. But Boomer remained an abolitionist like several people in the alliance, and I think that history will show that they were right and we would have done better had we uh, kept an abolitionist movement, uh, the patron saint for which is a man named Ken Heckler, uh, the West Virginia congressman who fought strip mining for years in the Congress and elsewhere. Thank you. I want to take uh, Questions or share further reflections uh, at the risk of making us running a little bit later. Um, I don't, for the sake of time, I don't want to just cut this short. So, if anyone has um, just responses or questions, please feel free. Uh. So, I know that year after year after year, we've uh, had to defend the, the unmined minerals tax in the state legislature. It's like it's almost a given every year you have to go defend it because they try to take it away. They try to chip away at it, but the, the basic constitutional principle, they can't change. Uh -huh. We won that. It, that can't be changed. They can chip away at it, and they've tried unsuccessfully for the most part. But y'all changed the Constitution. That was a rock thing to do. Right. Yeah. <laughs> that was a different like, y'all did change the Constitution. <laughs> <That was> a... <laughs> we can change the Constitution. They can. <laughs> I helped change that because <laughs> I voted for it. <laughs> Alex, do you have something that you want to say? Yeah, where's the original data? Uh, there's a stack of computer printouts that I gave Fred Hay. Most of the stuff's at Appalachian State University. The, the, I don't know if any of y'all remember big old computers and big old printouts. Well, there was a stack when I came to the Highlander Library, and I was like, these are the computer printouts. We don't need them here. So Fred, so those, the computer printouts are there, and all the other materials are there, whatever there is. And Appalachian State. Appalachian State. Appalachian State. Yeah, that's where I went to do the research for the... The things I wrote. So. I thought the state was the fiscal, fiscal agent, agent for the ARC grant. And we would actually <clears throat> introduce ourselves as 
at uh, students with Appalachian State when we went to some of these courthouses. Because if you said you were a soccer member, no, that was a yeah. <laughs> and, and it's well known that everybody wants to help a student yeah. with their project so they'll get a good grade from their teacher. So, yeah, as long as you can pull it off, say you're a student. <laughs> This might be going back a little too far for you guys because I don't know if you were around in 77, but I wonder if anyone could suggest a good, concise place where you would get a history of uh, the negotiations surrounding SPACRA before its mm -hmm. passage, who was for it, who was against it. Is there a single place where you can get a concise history? Herb. <laughs> well, the congressional record, I mean, if you want to yeah. look back, at the, SMACRA had a history that started much earlier than it got passed. There were versions uh, of SMACRA back to 72, 74, 76, that finally passed in 77. The congressional record itself has it, got a lot of uh, information in it, which I've recently had to go back and review as a result of a lawsuit that uh, Mary Cromer, who's here and I, are working on uh, that involves SMACRA. But, but it, the congressional record's a pretty good pretty good place to look for that. Uh, let, let me mention Chad Montford's book, uh, To Save the Land and People. Uh, I, but instead of recommending a book, I sometimes recommend a short article that Chad wrote for a a volume called uh, Plundering Appalachia, isn't that the name of it? Yeah. Plundering Appalachia that has some of the most amazing photographs by Vivian Stockman of OVEC and others. There are other photographers involved with that. But in that volume, you'll find several really fine articles. One is by Chad Montre, which basically sums up uh, his research, his book. And the other is by Ken Heckler. And it describes what he tried to do in Congress and so on. It gives you a sense of the uh, what what went on there uh, when uh, Smicra was uh, was passed. But that book, Plundering Appalachia, which you could get, you know, it, it came out. It was one of those coffee table type books, you know, big, heavy, and pricey. You can get it for ten bucks now, eight bucks. You know, it's, it's cheap, but. For those two or three articles alone, it's an excellent uh, book. Charlie, you want to say, say something, then maybe we'll um, go to Adam and then move on to our next. Um... I want to appreciate the work that you've done, because it certainly impacted us, my generation, in different ways. It was probably one of the first cross-class culture things that I ran across that really cared about something that I cared about and didn't come the day preconceived it needs to be this versus this kind of exercise. Because Susan did that and she stayed at Highlander. So I just wanted to appreciate how some of the play apps you may not were not always aware of have really helped recreate it and been that started us coming back together. If you hadn't done that we probably would not, we don't know where we'd be at in our communities or place because we didn't walk that path. But today we know we can come back together again and revisit and take it into different levels and earn success from different perspectives. So thank you.
Adam, the final word? Wow, I gotta follow that. Um, so my, yeah, my question is, um, that I think is instructive with some of the things we were talking about. I talked with Herb a little bit about this. In counties like Hamilton County, Tennessee, which is also, was included in the study and is also the home county of Chattanooga, did you do a full land study of Chattanooga or how did you decide which areas were too urban or did you go all the way? Well, we were just, we just coded for prop size of parcels that were over 15 acres or something, uh, large, 20 acres? Larger than that, I thought. Anyway, yeah. so we, all the little, little ones. Yeah. And it, I, I, never, we could never have done an urban area. It would, yeah. it would have been overwhelming. Well, Hamilton County was part of it. Yeah. But I mean, yeah. to do, to yeah, do yeah. every yeah. yeah, we didn't do, all, we did a, sort of a, uh, by a certain size and ownership. <laughs> mm -hmm. But like in Cumberland County, there's Fairfield Glade and Tansy, you know, where we, people have like half a lot each, you know, so they had big old fat boats too, but we just paid 20 <laughs> Ouch. Well, thank you all so much for the work that you did and for sharing your reflections. Really, thank you. Since the 2016 meeting, regional groups have begun to work on a new Appalachian land study. Last August, a group of academics, organizers, and interested folks gathered at Pipestem in Summers County, West Virginia, to give updates and continue the conversation. Appalachian Transition Fellow Hope Hart recorded the following interviews. First, we hear from Jacob Meadows. Uh, well, I'm a graduate student at Appalachian State University. Um, I'm working toward two master's degrees, one in um, Appalachian Studies and the other in Environmental Policy. Um, my undergraduate degree is in Economics, so uh, I guess that's kind of how I got involved with the land study. Um, there's not too many economists that study Appalachian Studies, um, and this very much has to do with uh, economics, especially when it comes to, to tax policy and environmental policy as well. So. Um, I guess I really felt like I was a perfect fit to uh, to work on the land study as well as uh, research in particularly in North Carolina, but other states as well. Um, yeah. What do you think makes the land study important now? Uh, well, uh, you know, as the original land study found um, in some areas of Appalachia. Um, about 75% of the land is owned by absentee landowners. And that, that original land study was conducted four decades ago. So it, <laughs> I guess it's kind of out of date at this point. Um, but be, you know, there, there's a lot that's changed in Appalachia since then. Um, coal corporations are going bankrupt. Um, now we have more gas and oil drilling than we ever have. Right. So um, trying to figure out how land ownership patterns have changed or maybe not even the patterns themselves, but who owns the land, how those uh, parcels of land have um, been exchanged between different corporations with or they might not be different corporations. They might be corporations with uh, different names, but um that's important for our future. We, we need to figure out um, how to move forward in terms of policy in particular, um, because, you know, these corporations own these huge tracts of land that are left undeveloped, um, which obviously causes 
tons of problems for tax bases and local counties and communities. Um, and I guess as a young person, uh, that's pretty important for our future, right? We're, we're the people who are going to have to make a change or live with it. So, um, yeah, did, I, did that answer the question? Yeah. Okay. What is um what does undeveloped mean? What is undeveloped land? Um, typically it's just a for an example, maybe. Yeah. Um, <laughs> um, you know, I guess undeveloped. I would say um, it's literally just being held by a corporation uh, for its potential value. So, say it's corporation owns the mineral rights to. Um, you know, they might hold that until uh, they want to, um, you know, mine the coal or whatever, whatever minerals are on the, on the, or under the land. Um, so it just sits there with, with no economic, um, activity, I guess, I guess that's the right word to use for that. But, um, yeah, so it's just kind of just wooded land typically or which is i mean good in some ways but in other ways it's it's not when it's held by huge companies that aren't from the region so cool i'm wondering um is this the last question if you can tell me something if you don't have to have an answer to this but something that excites you about this land study but also something that you think is you know, going to be difficult and a challenge sure um, I think it's exciting because we have three different generations of people coming together uh, to solve one huge problem in Appalachia, and it's probably what I would consider to be the biggest problem in Appalachia because uh, in, a, in a lot of ways, most of the issues that people see in Appalachia come back to land ownership. Um, so that's really exciting. and. It's really exciting to see young people out here. Um, there's, what, 30 people here maybe, and there's at least six or seven people probably under the age of 30. Uh, so that's that's um, that's really exciting. Um, Difficulty-wise, uh, I think that there are going to be challenges um, in terms of methodology and how we all come together in a common a common way in terms of states and communities to produce results. I think that's going to be difficult, but it's definitely not impossible. So um, I would say that's probably one of the bigger challenges we face. And when you say the states, what states are currently involved in the project? Um, let's see, North Carolina, Virginia, Kentucky, West Virginia, Tennessee. I think that's it. Mm -hmm. yeah. That's brilliant. Yeah. Um, I said that was the last question. Do you mind doing one more? Sure. Okay, she's going. I know that you're specifically working in North Carolina, mm -hmm. and I was wondering if you could speak a bit about the work that you've done and, well, just basically what we were talking about earlier with the conservancies. I thought that was oh, interesting. Oh, sure. Um, so in Western North Carolina, um, we have what I would call a plethora of resources or um, stakeholders. Um, we have, uh, I want to say, at least 25 land conservancies in North, uh, Western North Carolina. 
um, who I believe would be very interested in assisting with the study. Um, as well, we also have um, quite a few universities. So, um, uh, you know, I believe that uh, between the land conservancies and the universities in the western part of the state, um, we can build serious capacity to uh, collect data, collect quantitative data, data out of courthouses or online databases, as well as uh, qualitative data from real people in the region. And uh, yeah, I, mean, I think that's really a really exciting thing to be able to be a part of is create these networks and build capacity within Western North Carolina for land studies. So. Next, we hear from Lindsay Shade, a lecturer in the Department of Community and Leadership Development at the University of Kentucky. I was wondering if you could tell me some about the land study and what it is today. So the land study in this moment today looks like collectives of people coming together to discuss how we understand the patterns of land ownership and how those patterns of land ownership impact our daily lives in the region. And what is your involvement with the study? I've mostly been involved as a coordinator and kind of a convener to try to bring those people together. Um, to try to establish a process for decision-making and planning um, to get a foundation in place for the study design as well as a lot of the administrative work, just like working with people to set up a website, set up filing systems, um, and things like that. What's something that, is there anything that you feel differentiates this study today from the study that was done and in, in published in the 80s? I think the major difference that I'm starting to see through the conversations we've been having over the past year is that uh, th there are a couple of things. One is the, the political moment is very different. Um, in the late 70s, we saw kind of the um, emergence of the predominance of strip mining happening, and we saw the coal industry and the resource industries kind of in question having a, having a lot of power um, within the political systems. And right now, that power is on the decline. And so we see that as a major opportunity just simply because of the economics of where coal is today. Um, that really changes the political configuration where we have uh, people in the counties and the states in positions of political authority who really do support the idea of um, thinking about alternative ways to use the land. Um, so that's one difference. And then another difference is perhaps in the way um, the study can be carried out. Because most counties now do have their tax data digitized, which was the main kind of strategy they used to figure out ownership in the first study, um, we are able to analyze tax data much more efficiently. So the first study was really based on organizing teams of people to go out and look at the handwritten land books and figure out a way to analyze that data to determine patterns of ownership. Um, today, we don't have to spend so much time digitizing and coding all the land books because that's in some ways already done. Um, so that kind of opens up other ways to think about how do we measure ownership and what other techniques can we use. Um, yeah, cool. which we're still discussing. But. Yeah, yeah. Um, what is something that 
excites you about this study and I guess is a personal involvement or interest in it, if there's something to that? Um, well, I am from the Mississippi Delta region of Northeast Arkansas. Um, it, we have different issues around land ownership and land use. But what we have in common is that we're a resource producing area, um, mostly agricultural commodities. And my personal passion and interest in, in resource economies comes directly from my own history with that. Um, so I'm really excited to think about um, the, the ways that resource producing economies contribute more broadly to the national economy and the way that that configures into patterns of, of consumption and production. Um, yeah, so for me, I'm just really passionate about understanding the dynamics of the resource economy and the, the people who really are kind of behind the way that everybody gets their stuff, you know, including in the big cities. What we eat, how we get energy, all that. Mm -hmm. Cool. If you, um, this might be strange, I'm not sure, but if you had to give like an elevator pitch on like what the land study is and what it's doing, is there something that, to someone that like knows nothing about this effort and what's happening, um, do you know what you would say? Do you have thoughts about what that would be? Um, usually what I say when people ask me about my work on this is, is that we already know from a comprehensive study that was done in the late 1970s uh, by a group of people who were really frustrated with a lot of things that were going on in, in their local communities in terms of access to resources and the way that um, the political system worked. Uh, we know that, that they mobilized to do a study to understand land ownership at that time, and they found that most of the land in this Appalachian region is held by outside individuals and corporations. Um, who are just holding on to land in order to later exploit it for the resources. And that this has left very little land available for local people, and it has also really impacted the power system, because who owns stuff is generally who is able to control the, the production process, and that's really everything. Um, so this is kind of a long elevator pitch, but essentially the land study is all about um, following up on this legacy of um, organizing around corporate absentee ownership, understanding how that has changed today, if it has changed, and, and what the differences are and what we can do to make things better. And finally, we hear from Taryn Young. I am the Appalachian Transition Land Study Fellow in Wise County, Virginia. We are looking at the 1970s late 70s land study and comparing that to land ownership today. So it's a lot of data, a lot of um, tax records and assessments to see the corporate land ownership patterns in the county. What's something that you're, if, is there anything that you're excited about with the new land study? So I'm, I'm very excited at, at looking at and comparing the old study and the new study and looking at how um, corporate land ownership has affected the lands and the patterns of land usage um, and just people's ability to access land.
Why is the land study important? Well, one thing since I've been doing some community outreach is most people have told me I've never thought about this before. People don't think about land because we're all we all have our one little lot or or our one little square and people don't think about the common areas. It's important because there's less and less land for us to use. It's important that people feel empowered about the communities that they live in. I think knowing about the land, knowing what their rights are, knowing what they can and can't do in the polls when it comes to land um, and the say-so they have over the jobs coming into the area. I mean, it's important that people have that and feel empowered. I guess since as a friend, if it's too open-ended, let me know. But I was wondering, like, what else would you like to say about the land study? I would like to ask people to get involved. There are many different levels and areas of involvement. Don't think that you don't know enough or you don't know about research or you don't know about land or taxes because yes, that's important. And if you want to know, you can be shown how to do that type of research, which is a skill that you can take with you forever and put on resumes. But there's other types of qualitative research as well, as far as going on walks and just documenting the land. Walking the land with someone that grew up um, you know, 50 years ago and then walking the land with someone that's a child now and understanding the differences, collecting some oral histories, um, talking about people's relationships with the land. Uh, there's, there's so many different types of valuable research that anyone could do. Maybe talk, if you can talk more about the land study in terms of the fellowship, like maybe what's something that you've learned this year or who have you been working with or something like that. My fellowship is a partnership between Southern Appalachian Mountain Stewards, Appalachian Voices, and the Lichen Network, also Highlander Research and Education Center. Highlander was part of the original land study. So I'm collaborating with all of these organizations. Um, it's not solely academic. Um, it's a lot of community-based work, and we want it to be very community-led, which is why I encourage the people of the area to get involved. This is not um, a partisan effort or left or right or anything like that. It's just about finding out who owns the land that we all, regardless of our politics, live on and what's what's best for us in Appalachia. It's kind of interesting how with this data like maybe the numbers can speak for themselves or yeah numbers don't lie that's that's one thing you know what the the numbers do really speak for themselves and the majority of wise county at the very least is is owned by outside corporations that is not revenue coming into 
Wise County. You know, it's this isn't even about coal or if coal is good or if coal is bad or anything like that. It's not really an environmental effort. It's just basically who owns the land and how can we use it here for ourselves? How can we own the land in Appalachia? How can Appalachians own what they live on? That's it for this week's edition of Mountain Talk, featuring the history of the 1981 Appalachian Land Ownership Study and community initiatives to launch a new land study today. To learn more about the current land ownership study, visit www.appalachianlandstudy.com. If you'd like to listen to this or previous episodes of Mountain Talk again, you can find it on our website, www.wmmt.org or download the program as a podcast on SoundCloud. I've been your host, Rachel Geringer, and from all of us at WMMT, thanks so much for listening to Real People Radio. Thank you.